We continue this morning the series on the book of Revelation. And today we're going to be dealing with um, the second part of chapter 1. But before we do that, I just wanted for us to um, remind ourselves of some details. Um, And also, on top of that, I just want to say that um, every Sunday I'm going to be preparing um, notes and... um, which is going to be the outline or probably the brief outline of the sermon and then some questions that you can take to work on your own uh, through the week or if you wanted to discuss them at your home groups and discipleship groups, um, feel free to do so. Um, And also I'm aiming that every Sunday I'm going to bring some slides that will help us to capture a little bit of what's going on in the book and also will help us also to, to learn. Now, today we're going to be doing something different. Uh, I don't know, for those of you who were here um, last time, last Sunday, we talked about the, complexi- the complexity of the book. We said it comes with an ap- apocalyptic angle, it comes with a prophetic angle, and it comes also with a discipleship angle. And um, we're trying to, 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 to work around all those areas as we kind of unfold truths um, about this book. But <clears throat> one of the things that struck me from the commentators is that they seem to be, they, they seem to be dealing with this in the beginning of the book, actually. They all refer to this idea that the book of Revelation is presented to us as a drama. What's going to happen in chapter 1, and especially what's going to be looking this morning, is that John, the author, is trying to open the curtain and shed light in what is to come. So, this morning, we're going to start the drama by reading the passage. I'm not going to read it, which you would be very pleased. Dave Carhill is going to come and read it for us. After the reading, we're going to be singing together and then I'm going to be moving to the sermon. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. 
And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampshades. And among the lampshades was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun. the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and of the golden lampshades is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen.
Thank you, Dave and the band, for that powerful reading of God's Word. And let me remind you again this morning that not only the person who reads it, but the hearers and the ones who take it to heart will be blessed by this book. So here we've got John. He is on the island of Patmos. And he's got a revelation that has been imparted to him to pass it on. What a privilege. What a responsibility. And what a treasure that we've got that is passed on generation after generation. So Patmos is a small island. And traditions, different, thing, different traditions say different things about why John was there. So one strong tradition says that John was sent there to be banished because he was one of these influential troublemakers. And one way that they dealt with those people in those days was that they were banished. They were sent into remote islands so that there was no ways that they could communicate with the real world. There is also another tradition that says that John was a missionary. So he had gone there, and they kind of back that up from verse 4 when it talks about God's word and his service. And also, the other tradition is that um, actually John was sentenced to be dipped in um, hot oil, in boiling oil, and therefore he was just waiting for that time. So we don't know. I mean, there is different patients that we get from different sources. And um, whatever he was doing, it's very interesting how in whatever capacity he was there, he still is able to receive this powerful revelation from God. He has been serving God. Now, I know that we're going to go into this a little bit later on the book, who John is and uh, who is different traditions say that he is. You know, there is a, a discussion going whether he is the Apostle John. There is a discussion whether he is John the Elder. Um, and there's also another discussion that is going on that one of the reasons why John is not disclosing who he really is is because this letter that he's sending is a, uh, a circular letter. So he's trying to, to keep the, the identity of the writer a little bit disclosed so that the letter is able to arrive to the churches because it's this trip. But we'll get into that when we go to chapter 3 and, and 4. But here we've got John. And he's... 
he's continuing to be still in this beginning chapter, very pastoral to his audience, to his recipients. He is kind of seeing this as an opportunity to see them eye to eye. So he's saying, John, I am a brother to you. I am a companion to you. And it's very interesting in the areas that he is identifying himself to be a companion to with the other churches, the seven churches that he's sending this revelation, because obviously there was big persecution, and not only that, also big deceptions going on within the churches. And there are three things that he can identify with them as the brother in Christ, but also as a companion. He can identify with them in their suffering. He can identify with them in the kingdom. And he can identify with them with patience and endurance. Now, the moment I read this, I think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that the model of ministry that he lived and he passed on? Or isn't that the model of the ministry that he functioned in? Suffering, bringing, bringing kingdom, and patiently enduring, regardless of what's going on. So he's trying to see them eye to eye because he knows that being a follower of Jesus Christ is not an easy thing. Being a follower of Jesus Christ has got a price that each and every one of the followers ought to pay. And that actually applies for you and me in the 21st century. But he's not only a brother. John is saying that actually he is encountering something bigger than just the, the church and the companionship and the brotherhood. He's encountering the Lord. On the Lord's day and in the Spirit, I heard a triumphing voice. Now this is John on the Lord's day. Do you see the, the, the sequence of his thought that he's still bringing back them to the point where they can come and say, actually, we are here because of the resurrection. The Lord's day is not the day that we're going to read later on in the book of Revelation when it's the day of the Lord, when it's judgment and stuff. This is talking about the Lord's day when people of God, which in this case the early church, decided to be the Sunday where they all came together and reminded them of the victory that they had in Christ because of his death and the resurrection. Do you see how pastoral he is being? He is pointing them to that right direction because actually 
life for them is really, really miserable. They're having to deal with a lot of persecution. They're having to deal with a lot of things that are really causing them strife from outside. But also we said last Sunday that there is some funny teaching going on and there is deception going within the community. So he has to come back to that point, the Lord's Day, when we celebrate the victory of Christ over death. This notion of victory is very, very important for John and the recipients and therefore we can learn from it as 21st century church because he's talking about this victorious life despite the assault of the devil, of the enemy or other agents that the devil uses against God's church. And throughout the whole book, I'd really like for us to look at that. Not only what does it look for us in the 21st century in a Western developed country, but as I said last Sunday, it will be good to shed some light here with a perspective. You know, what does this look like, this passage, look like for a Christian who loves God, who has decided to follow Christ and therefore has to experience the life of hell? even in the 21st century. But John is saying, he is a companion, he is a brother, and he is celebrating God's victory. And he is doing them, all of this, and this stronghold notion, in the Spirit of the Lord. Which brings me back to the prophecy of the Old Testament where God said, not my might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And if we think that this is towards the end of the earthly apostolic area of the apostles who followed Jesus, he's still reminding them that actually church, we have been given the button, not only of the gospel, but with the gospel, we've got the whole package. Because Jesus promised that in this world, you will be persecuted. In this world that I'm leaving you, you'll have troubles. But I will not leave you as orphans, but I'll send the spirit of truth which will empower you. So he is really celebrating the promises that he's got in God. And of course, he wants to remind himself, but also the recipients. He's talking about victory here. He's talking about the power of the resurrection. He's talking about the Spirit of God. And I tell you what, in moments when it's really dark, and you think that there's not much life left for the church or for the community of believers. I experienced this in a very small way in 1997. There's only a few things that you can grab a hold of that become very close to your heart. All the theories 
and all the thoughtfulness and the reflections and things, they all fade away because you come, you become so vulnerable that you get a hold of the strong things that you, they're really meaningful to you. And therefore for John, this power of resurrection, it's a relief because he's thinking that actually Jesus has defeated not only death, but the devil. And there is more life, more to life than just being miserable, being persecuted, struggling with what the devil is bringing against God's church. But here's John. The last character, oh, what, another characteristic of John is that he's having this heart. Am I on the slides here? John is having this heart of obedience. He's obeying to what God is telling him. And you're going to see this throughout the whole book, that it's going to come directly and indirectly, that obeying Christ, obeying to what God has called us, is far more important than what we see from the outside, from what we see inside. So getting a hold of that is very important. So God speaks to him, and he needs to take this information that God has given to Jesus Christ, to the angel, and then to John, for the seven churches, wherever they are. Now, what implications do these things have got for us as a church? What are some of the things that we can stop now and think on our individual discipleship, but also on our corporate discipleship. Is the life, the ministry of all our walk with Jesus flavored, marked, influenced, impacted by suffering, kingdom, and patiently endurance? Or patiently enduring. What does that look like for us when we talk about suffering? What does it look for us as individuals? What does it look for us as corporate? What does kingdom look for us as Cairns Road? What does it look for us in our workplace tomorrow when we get on the car and we go to see colleagues, to see things, to work with projects? Have we got a flavour of kingdom in what we do Monday through Sunday? The other question is about patience. Patience and endurance. Can we afford to be patient, patient, can we afford to be enduring and waiting there? 
For the early church, the coming of the Lord was quite imminent. They, know, they knew that they didn't know the time and stuff. But that return of the Lord was that really the idea of him coming was that, that gave them power and peace and stuff. And that's why they could see these things of suffering and kingdom and patience and endurance with, with the prospect that actually Christ is coming. And I said it last Sunday as well, and I want to say that, that every time we partake in the Lord's table, when we share the symbols of bread and grape juice or wine, we are individually and corporately proclaiming that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and he will come again. What about the Lord's Day or in the Spirit? What does that mean for us as a church? How do we encourage one another to say that actually Sunday is so precious because this is the place and this is the time when we all as God's people, despite of the weeks that we the week that we have had or the week that we're looking into, we are going to look at this week differently. And the remembrance and the reminder of Christ's victory on the cross and the resurrection is going to really flavor, is going to really impact the way that we do this. Do we prioritize it in a way that actually I really pray that I will see Christ's victory in our gathering on Sunday? Do we pray for that for the church? Do we pray for the church for the people who lead here, for the people who serve us coffee, for the people who set up chairs, people who, who teach our children and the young people, the people who are behind the screen there. And is the victory of the cross and the empty grave the mark? The one that really influences, the one that really makes us to be together as God's people. And what about the Spirit? Do we want God's Spirit? Do I want God's Spirit? It's not prescribed. It's not. In such a regimented world when we want everything so regimented and so well-planned and stuff, see it in the Bible, see it in the Old Testament, see it in the New Testament. It was unexpected. And it was beyond the expectations of the people who were experiencing the Holy Spirit. So do we pray? Do we ask that actually we're going together together every Sunday because we've got the conviction in our hearts that we're celebrating Christ's victory And we are not going to do it just because it's something we've got nothing else to do. But we are going to do it prompted by the Spirit, expecting for Him to transform us so we can go and live our week the way He wants us to live. And what about the churches? We're going to be dealing with the churches in the next... 
two, three Sundays uh, individually and see why is God concerned for his people and why is John so concerned to pass on this message. But it's very interesting that the vision that we see of the churches, the vision that we see of the churches, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with the golden sash round his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of the rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. What the churches are going to experience, what the picture that John is experiencing and is having to pass it on, is the picture of the resurrected Christ. Now, I'm not going to use a lot of symbolism here because sometimes we can take away from all this Sorry, symbolism I mean by putting a lot of pictures because there's a lot of different illustrations there for um, interpreting the book of Revelation because I don't want for us to take also from the literal concepts that John is writing. But one thing is clear, that Christ is in the centre of this lampstands. And I know that we've been looking in the book of Revelation, only chapter 2 and chapter 3, ever since we became Christians. And we forget that Christ is not finished with his church. Christ is not finished with Cairns Road. Regardless of all the things that we think are going wrong or all the things that we think we're doing right. But one thing that we should not forget, and John very clearly reminds us, is that we cannot be called God's church if we have not got Christ in the center. We can be called anything but God's church without Christ in the center. Now, I know this sounds a little bit dismissive and it's exclusive. And my, my intention today is not to do that. But God's word is very clear that when John is having this revelation that is being sent to the churches, which are symbolized with seven, or each church is a lampstand, one powerful, powerful part of this revelation is that Christ is in the center. 
So this morning I'm going to ask a different question to us as Cairns Roads. What are some things that we can do better as God's people to highlight, to emphasize, and to celebrate the fact that Christ is in the center of our community? What does that look like for a cafe who opens three times a week? What does that look like for other day activities that happen here during the week? Stay and play, mainly music, baby club. What about Noah's Ark, preschool? What about us going to work? What about us raising children and grandchildren? What does this look like for us that we could highly or highlight or reflect and celebrate the fact that Christ and nothing else is the center of what we do. That's a tough job, church. That's a very tough job. And that's why John is suffering. That's why John is persecuted. And that's why those Christians are persecuted. Because they're being vocal. Because they're being intentional. Because they're being very kingdom orientated in what they do. And that's why they get in trouble. Because if they, get, if they kept quiet, if Assisi kept quiet six years ago, then she would have not been where she is here. The example that Mark Corcoran shared last Sunday about that lady who was persecuted in Pakistan. If she would have kept her mouth shut about Jesus, she would have not been in prison and she would have still been with her six children. And I'm not saying here that the church should go out there and get in trouble and individuals should be out there and get in trouble. But what I'm saying here is that for sure we should have marks. For sure we should have things that show us, that tell of us that we've got Christ in the center. So why do we open this church three days a week? Why do we have a Noah's Ark preschool? Is it because we want to be nice? Yes, that's a good reason. And that's the reason that our customers and families want to hear. That's the reason that they see. But I think we can step up a little bit to this. And we're saying, actually, we want to be this people. We want to serve out this community. Because this is what God has called us to. And this is what we want to proclaim Christ. And this is one of the ways that we are showing that Christ is in our center. I'm going to be a little bit more personal. What are the marks that show that Christ is the center of your home groups? If you don't go to a home group, I want to ask the question, why? If it's the good banter and fellowship that we have, that's great. But it's very clear that those home groups, discipleship groups, 
being discipled by Jesus, cannot be called discipleship groups if Christ is not in the center. We're going to develop this theme a little bit more when we talk about churches and their characteristics. The last point that I want to make is something that John does in response to this revelation. This is from my Logos Bible software um, and it's a ready-made Bible verse. When I saw him, when I saw this resurrected Christ, when I saw the, the splendor of the king that we just sang, all I could do is shut up and fall on the ground. So, church, we need to be very careful when we say, God, let your glory come. So what this revelation makes John immediately do is fall in wonder and worship this God that is revealing to him. And I don't know whether John is feeling here very privileged, and I'm sure he is, but I don't know what's causing him, but Instantly, he falls down like he is dead and has to be reminded that it is okay. Has to be reminded that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. So John is fearful, but he is not devastated. He's just encountered this picture that he, he had never seen before of who God is. And that's all he can do. And God talks to him and says, now get up. It's okay. Because you've got a job to do. You need to pass on this message to the churches. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Elections in America. I am the living one. I was dead and behold I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. You remember the promise that Jesus made to Peter? Peter, upon you I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Do you see the continuation of the promise that God is continuing to build His church? Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars 
are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We talked about the seven lampstands. Now, is John suggesting here that Cairns Road claims to be God's church and therefore, as part of the package, we've got an angel? Is that too embarrassing? Is that too unacceptable? I haven't got any problems with that. I know that there is a, a um, strong interpretation that says that it refers that the angels were the leaders of the church. I'm sure I'm not an angel. <laughs> but there is nothing wrong with that. We'll stop here because the conversation with the churches carries on. What I want for us to go home this week is to go away and think of the vision and celebrate the victory that we've got in Christ. And think a little bit more about the marks that we could have that prove or that show, that indicate that Christ is in our center. And I'm sure if we come to this place, then, then all we need to do, or all we want to do, is to worship him. So we thank you, Lord, for this ancient word. We thank you that it's got the power to bless us even today. And as we read these verses, Lord, in these coming days, I pray that we will catch a glimpse of your glory and by that being transformed and by that wanting to know and to love and worship you more And as a result, Lord, reaching out and furthering your kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. We want to bless your name. Amen.